Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Investors are in search of yield today outside of residential real estate. So we're going to talk about some niches you can get rich in today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Are you ready to profit in paradise? Hi, it's Robert Helms. And if you think real estate investing means tenants, toilets, and termites, think again. Located just a short plane ride from the U.S., a virtually untouched paradise awaits. The beautiful country of Belize. When you go to Belize with the Real Estate Guys, you'll spend four fabulous days discovering one of the most intriguing real estate markets I've ever seen. With its jungle rainforests, pristine beaches, and 81-degree turquoise water, Belize is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Plus, it's considered one of the top seven tax havens in the world. Belize property is on the rise, and many experts think the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it. Come experience Belize firsthand at our upcoming investor field trip. When you join us, you'll discover the many reasons we love Belize, like tremendously undervalued beachfront land, super low taxes, ease of doing business, and so much more. Get the details at realestateguysradio.com. Just click on events. See paradise for yourself. Click events at realestateguysradio.com, and I'll see you in beautiful Belize. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. The Real Estate Guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise or create a job for you. Attend the secrets of successful syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio show. I'm your host, Robert Helms. With me, co-host, financial strategist, Russell Gray. I got an itch for a niche today. Well, you're in luck because we're going to talk about a whole bunch of real estate niches. Uh, we're concluding our series today of alternative investments to residential. Cap rates are squeezed in apartments and individual inventory for investors in single-family homes can be bleak in certain areas. What's an investor to do in search of yield? Well, we covered a lot in the series in the last few weeks. So you can check that out uh, on our website at realestateguysradio.com or your favorite podcast location. But today we're going to talk about a catch-all, a grab bag, a whole bunch of different niches that you can choose to focus on, uh, many of which our students have done quite successfully. Yeah, so this is going to be rapid fire. We don't have time to get into the weeds on any of this stuff, but it really comes down to just understanding uh, something that we talk about the syndication seminar all the time in a branding and marketing component we do, which is don't be Waldo, right? If you remember the old little kid's book when you go in and you're trying to find uh, on a page this little guy with his little striped hat or whatever. Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? And you don't want to be so much a part of the crowd. You don't want to go in the crowded door. You want to try to find the, the back door, the secret entrance where it's less crowded and you can get better yields. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Most real estate investors do seek out a niche of some kind, even if it's a 
product type. You know, I invest in single family houses or it's a geography. I like this state or this county or this city or it's a demographic. Hey, I like to cater to folks that are millennials. Whatever it is, uh, we tend to gravitate towards a niche of some kind. We get to become specialists as real estate investors. Not everybody, but many of us. We do something we're good at and we continue to refine it. And that is a great recipe for success in a lot of areas. In real estate, there's some really cool niches. Last week, we talked about big categories of commercial property like retail, like industrial, like office. Today, let's touch on some of the unique ways that investors in our world are leveraging first non-residential, and then we'll talk about some actual residential niches. So one of the ones we love and have for a long time is self-storage where your tenants are boxes, not people. Yeah, it's fairly simple. There's no tenant improvements. It's no long-term leases, but also not as much turnover as you might think, right? Yeah. Because people just store their junk and they leave it there and it becomes an extension. It's like a virtual garage and they just, not virtual, I mean, it's an extended garage or an auxiliary garage, but they just pile all their crap up and they leave it in there and they pay month in and month out for years, in some cases decades, and it's uh, not a lot of work. It's fairly high utilization in terms of space and what you can collect in rent. It can be fairly low maintenance. It can be, and there's specialties within it, and we'll touch on some of those. But really, self-storage grew out of expensive real estate markets where people had a lot of junk in their garage and said, rather than buy a bigger house, we could go store this somewhere else cheaper, and it became kind of a little niche market. And Today, you see it kind of all over, and in some markets, stronger than others. So occupancy is a big thing. What is self-storage at its core? It's leasing space to someone who's going to store something. And what's great about that is you do not have the tenant landlord law issues that you have in most residential, which can be very limiting to landlords. And it's not just people and their personal crap. It's businesses and their stuff. You know, you think about like document storage, which is kind of a subset of storage in general. And why would a law firm or a medical practice that is paying a high per square footage rent for the office office space they're occupying waste that money storing boxes of records that they have to keep for, you know, year. when I was in the mortgage business, I had to keep records for seven years. Right. Those all ended up in a self-storage place. I wasn't going to pay office premium financial district rent to store boxes. And so that's another aspect of self-storage and why businesses would be interested in doing it. Well, and of course, today, most people are going to archive that electronically. We have all of our real estate transaction records for years and years electronic, but the law in many places requires you to have a physical copy. That's still, right. right? Not just an electronic copy and not even if it's backed up. You want that for business purposes. You can glean names and stuff. But at the end of the day, there are uses for space. And so it's an interesting niche. Now, what's different about it is there's sometimes a residential component. Many of these small self-storage areas actually have a live-on caretaker and or manager. Yeah. Oh, no, you can totally do that. It's uh, it, In fact, I've got a friend who did that for a long time and they actually lived right there on the property and uh, handled it. And you can store other things besides stuff inside. You, I've seen people, uh, I've got a self-storage space, as a matter of fact, where people have boats and cars and RVs. And these are just things that people own. They're attached to. They don't want to let them go. They need a place to park them. You could have a place that has no building. It's just an empty lot. And it's just holding these big vehicles. And that's another form of self-storage that doesn't even have any improvements on it. All right. It's a fascinating subject and one that we've been uh, intrigued by. We actually had some folks on our Investor Summit one year who uh, that's what they did. They did uh, self-storage. And we have a couple other people that are looking at getting into it. So uh, interesting place. Of course, like anywhere else, you want to make sure you're understanding the intricacies of it and uh, where demand is and all of that. Another interesting one, we have a gentleman right now who is looking at a very unique retail opportunity, and that is in the hair salon business. 
Now, the reason it's interesting isn't because of the business. The reason is because of the economic model of right. the way many hair salons work is that the individual practitioners rent a space, a small space, a station, they call it. And because of what they'll pay for that compared to what the cost per square foot is, it's a lot. And the yields can be, the cap rates on these can be 12, 15, 20%. Yeah. And that's, that's common, not just in hair salons, but you know, in nail salons are like that. I think some tattoo parlors work that way. So there are industries where you're actually, you as the landlord may be renting out the entire space to a master tenant, and then they're subleasing individual components, chair seats, stations, whatever you call it, to their tenants. Or you could be in the business of doing that directly and not really be in the business of providing the services. They provide the services, but you are, in fact, the master tenant. Absolutely. We talked last week a little bit about uh, office and one of the unique aspects we're seeing of office today is the shared office space. There are these business centers where you can have a membership and you go and have use of the copier and the coffee machine and a meeting space perhaps, uh, maybe a boardroom. Some people actually have small offices in these kinds of uh, buildings. And, and when you look at what the rental rate per square foot is, those can be super high. Yeah, that's another kind of niche model, you know. And even if all you're doing is supplying a mailbox because you have so many virtual workers today, think about the dollar per square inch you know, that you're making on just a little mailbox and you've got, you know, 200 of them on a wall and you're charging 30 or 40 or $50 a month per person for handling and processing their mail. That's a lot of revenue for a small amount of uh, space. Absolutely. I have a friend who owns several laundromats. Now, today, the laundromat world has changed a lot, but still at a certain socioeconomic level, what many people do is they go to the laundromat with their clothes to wash and dry. I remember when I was young, my next door neighbor, his dad owned one of these, and our job on Friday night was to go and to empty the machines of their money, to count all the money, and to clean the floors and the machines and we did that every weekend and we made good money doing it. Think about that business. It's a business that virtually runs itself. Most laundry facilities today that are small commercial laundry facilities are unmanned. There's not anybody there. Depending on what part of town it is, maybe you need somebody there. But again, you've got capital expenditure up front, but then the income is derived in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, the people doing their own work, right? And that's, uh, that's always a good thing. What about a car wash? Today, you look at people that want to go and wash the car themselves, right? There's basically two types of car washes, the kind that you drive through, and maybe they're even enhanced with people that come out and dry and really high service. And then there's the quick throw the quarters in the machine and hose off your car. Kiosks is another one. You know, you can take up little pieces of space in somebody else's. You know, you can set up an ATM machine somewhere, uh, and you may not be the ATM machine operator. You're just leasing two square feet or four square feet in some place, and you, if you have traffic in your retail center or wherever, and you you can pick up some revenue from that. Vending is another uh, variation on that same theme. The point is, I mean, in kind of all these little niches is you can you can extract quite a bit of revenue from a very small amount of space that is going otherwise unused. And you don't necessarily have to be the operator or the maintainer of the piece of equipment. You can cut a deal with the person who's doing that because they need to give you a piece of the action to be in your space. What you're bringing is the physical space and the traffic. So that's a great point because in a couple of other areas that we're going to talk about today, there's a difference between the owner and the operator. Right. Take the hair salon example. You might be the hair salon owner and operator and you have a hair station and you just rent out the other ones. And that's a model that works. But 
as a landlord, you may say, no, 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 I just want to find that one person. That's my tenant. And the fact that they can derive a lot of income from their stations means I can charge a little higher rent than if I leased it out to some other business. Absolutely. I think the bigger concept here to get your mind around is just the idea that it's a good idea to understand the entire food chain from the time the money is created through the person who's ultimately using whatever the product or service is all the way up until the owner of the real estate. And there might be multiple parties in that food chain. You can own the whole food chain or you can pick pieces of it to be a part of. And that's just a matter of your personal investment philosophy and where you want to play. We're talking about ways to get yield through real estate that aren't necessarily residential, but are certainly niches. When we come back, we'll talk about some residential niches as well, and maybe some things you hadn't thought of before. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Live nationwide, you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. Are you achieving everything you want in life? What if there was a time-tested way for you to get everything you've dreamed of? The most successful people in life set goals and keep themselves accountable, but how? The good news is that it's not rocket science. You too can learn the skills and unleash the motivation that will create success in your life. And now is the time. Hi, this is Robert Helms, and I'd like to personally invite you to attend Creating Your Future, the 2016 Goals Retreat, taking place January 8th through 10th in beautiful San Diego, California. This unique weekend has been called phenomenal, inspirational, and life-changing by the hundreds of people that have attended. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com and click events or call 888-489-7723, extension 18. Get your life back on track physically, spiritually, and financially. Attend the 2016 Goals Retreat on the second weekend of the new year. Click events at realestateguysradio.com and register why there's still early bird pricing. This is no dress rehearsal. Live the life you were meant to. Visit realestateguysradio.com or call 888-489-7723 today. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe of Paradigm Life. Over the last few years, I've had the privilege of sharing the services of Paradigm Life with you loyal Real Estate Guys Radio listeners through our website, www.beerbank.com, and also on the annual Investor Summit at Sea. Subsequently, we have seen a variety of financial situations across the socioeconomic spectrum and how everyone, regardless of their situation, would improve their financial lives by following the system we specialize in. As a result of this experience, we have created an online e-learning system so anyone without obligation can learn about the infinite banking concept. This free e-learning program is found on our website, www.beerbank.com. So check it out today. The website again is www.beerbank.com. Hi, this is Frank Holmes, Chief Investment Officer and CEO of U.S. Global Investors, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning into the show, however you listen, whether it's through podcast or radio or some other methodology. Tell a friend about The Real Estate Guys. We've been talking the last few weeks about different ways to get yield as a real estate investor that aren't necessarily residential. Today, we're focused more on individual niches, kind of the unique things that you might do as a real estate entrepreneur. And we've been talking about some of the uses of real estate to derive a high dollar per square foot. Let's talk about some other unique ways that kind of piggyback, if you will, on use of real estate. One of my favorite tenants of all time 
is a cell tower. Yeah, I mean, you think about the proliferation of phones and the need for additional bandwidth and uh, how many people out there are trying to consume that bandwidth. It's very important to have a big network of towers, and those towers often have to be strategically located in uh, central points and high points and areas that everybody can access them. And if you happen to be fortunate enough to own a piece of property, it could be a hilltop, could be a high building, could be something that just happens to be on the right corner. And uh, for just a little bit of space, you can get a high amount of revenue. And often those are very, very long-term commercial tenants, require next to nothing from you, and they pay quite well. Absolutely. We had a building where I'd like to think that we were smart enough to go figure this out, but we weren't. We were approached by a company that said, hey, we're looking for cell tower space. You may not realize this, but your two-story building has the highest sight line of anything in the area, and we'd like to lease the space. And well, what does that look like? Well, we do everything. We cover all the costs. You provide us with access, and you have to make sure you have legal access to that part of your roof. You can't just assume that's true, but you're probably going to be able to figure that part out. They need power and those kinds of things, but they'll generally put the power in their own name. And this was more than 10 years ago, so I'm not current in terms of what today's numbers might look like because we've since sold this building $2,500 a month yeah. for that tower. It wasn't long before a competitor came and said, well, we'd like to locate one right next door. Now, that wasn't the only tenant like that had. Do you remember our server room? Right. In right, that right. building, right? We That's had a company. Right. This was a company, a small company that leased a very tiny a closet. closet. <laughs> it was a closet. And in it was a kind of a cooled space that had all these servers. And they were a, an ISP, essentially. And and. Talk about a great tenant. Yeah, I mean, because you don't do anything. They have no needs. And again, very little tenant improvements. And, you know, in the case of the cell tower, the cell tower is the tenant improvement. I mean, there's really nothing to do. You know, you just have to give them a little bit of uh, rights of access. And there's other examples of this. I mean, you think like billboards, for example, could well, be another well, way to Well, billboards are interesting because you could absolutely put a billboard on the side of a building and in places like Manhattan and Chicago and, and New York and San Francisco, you see that. But a billboard is also in an interesting category. If I'm a landowner, imagine that I have a hundred acres on a freeway somewhere and I have some long-term land banking outcome for that or I'm going to develop it or I'm going to sell it or whatever I'm going to do. In the meantime, billboards can derive income. So there's a lot of temporary categories. Think of what we call the pop-up store. A pop-up store is like the Halloween costume right, shop right. or a sports shop that specializes in, say, football jerseys or baseball, the local baseball team or anything that's only up for a season. Well, those can be really lucrative because of the amount that those people will pay. A friend of mine has a retail center where for the last 10 years he's had a pop-up Halloween store and he says that for the three months that they rent it because they're not open for three months but they rent it and they have to stock it and they put it the shelves and so forth for those three months he makes nearly as much money as he would if he had a full-time tenant and a lot less wear and tear the last two years he's done nothing with the space in the interim so the Halloween store comes back and there's everything like they left it I'm not saying you should only lease your buildings a quarter of the time but it works. Yeah, and and so you have ways of being able to take advantage of idle space. I mean, if you think about like even a retail store, you literally can rent out your countertop, right? You can have people, businesses will come and they will put a little flyer box there with business cards and, and they'll pay you rent to have that there. So be creative in thinking about ways that you can get additional yield out of the spaces you already have. You know, you may have a residential complex and you could add storage, for example, or you could create some other amenity where you're using idle space and then making that generate additional revenue. Be creative in, in how you approach the problem. All right. We're not going to give you the entire list because you've got to be creative and come up with some of 
with that. Let's talk, <laughs> though, about some of the niches that are residential. So the premise of this whole series has been that cap rates on apartments are squeezed, right? It's hard to get a good return on an apartment building of any size today because there's a lot of money chasing that asset type. Single-family homes in many areas that are high rental areas are facing the same thing, where the multipliers aren't working as well. Investors are bidding up the price, or worse, the local owner-occupants bid up the price, and they'll often pay more than a landlord will, and it's hard to get inventory. We have providers in lots of different states in the U.S. and several other countries who are saying inventory is tight. So that's why we started looking at, well, what are some other types of real estate to talk about? But there are some residential uses that do have high returns. Take, for example, manufactured housing, mobile homes. Yes. I mean, that's huge. And this goes into a bigger concept of demographically what's going on, right? We talk about how wages have been stagnant and you've got a big group of baby boomers, many of whom haven't saved up for retirement. And so they don't quite have enough money to live maybe the lifestyle that they'd been living. And so they're going to sell their house and they need to buy a home, but they need to buy a more affordable home. They want to have the pride and freedom of ownership and they want to stay maybe in an area closer to family that's more expensive. So what do you do? Mobile homes is a way that they can do that. And that's a great tenant to have because they're paying slip space, but everything else they act like an owner and they are taking care of the property and they're typically in it for the long term. So it's a longer term tenancy. It's just great. But the other thing is right now, it is also an extremely high yielding space to be. And if America continues to get uh, struggles economically, it's probably going to be more demand as people try to move down the food chain into more affordable housing. Well, what's great from the user's point of view, the tenant's point of view about mobile homes is it's the highest value per square foot, meaning for the size of a unit, a 1,500 square foot mobile home, what I pay in rent is a lot less than a comparable condominium, apartment, or rental house. And so I can get more bang for my buck, more square footage. There are some folks who can do very well in an 800 square foot apartment. But if you have kids, if you need more space, if you need just to be able to put your stuff somewhere, mobile homes are attractive to that. And because of that, the turnover isn't quite as high. Now, you talked about the economic model. It varies. There are some mobile home parks where the owner actually owns many, if not all, of the homes. And they're renting out a furnished sometimes or rent-ready space, which includes the space rental. Right. But many mobile homes, all you basically do is own the land and the hookups, and you have the right to put a mobile home there. Now, let's just talk quickly about mobile homes. We're definitely going to do a show in the future because we've got a bunch of folks in our world doing mobile homes, but we're not quite ready to, to go deeply into the subject. But there are essentially two types of homes, so the kinds that really become permanent structure and then the ones that are, that are truly mobile. And you can kind of tell the way that a park is structured from a legal point of view by whether or not it has license plates in the back windows. Right? Yeah, right. If, if it does, that tells you that those are DMV registered. Trailer right? parks. At trailer parks, right. So, But today, the variety is huge. And some manufactured housing is quite nice. So it isn't all low end. But what it is, is the economic model is a portion of the rent goes to you as the park owner. But most of what they're paying is for either financing the home or if they own the home outright, then you are the lion's share of what they're paying out every month. And it's usually fairly small. So there's not as much default. And tenant-landlord law is a little different. If somebody has their home on your space and they quit paying, you, of course, of course check state by state and county by county, it's often easier to get them out than even an apartment would be. Yeah, I think the main thing is that both the demographics and the economics, especially in the United States of America right now, make this a really attractive niche. And it's why we're going to come back and pay more attention to it. Let's talk about another high dollar per square foot return on residential property you might not thought of, and that's student housing. 
My uh, first job in real estate really was as on-site manager of a student housing building. I mean, it was a privately owned apartment building, but most of the tenants were students because it was a block from a major university. And so what was unique about this property is it had a high yield per square foot because every single unit was just a studio, just a room, but two rooms shared a common area kitchen and a common area bathroom. So imagine this, you knock on the door of the hallway, you open up and there's a hall, straight ahead is the bathroom, on one side is a room, on the other side is a, is a room, around the back side of those rooms is the kitchen. And so essentially each person has the use of half the kitchen, the use of half the bathroom and shower and their own space. The tenant is paying for the full amenity set of a kitchen and bathroom, while you're essentially renting as the landlord the kitchen and bathroom twice. So even though the rent was relatively low, per square foot, the rent was enormous. Right. And even though students can sometimes be a bit of a hassle, most of the time the income's coming from mom and dad. And they really aren't demanding. I mean, they're, they're, they're just used to having a little space and they kind of come and go. You leave them alone. And as long as they don't tear the place up too badly, you don't have to do much except maybe in between tenancies. And you know that these guys, especially if it's a four-year college and they come in at the beginning, there's a good chance they could be there two, three, four years. And the other thing is, is they often are your best marketing because they're busy recruiting their friends because they all want to hang out together. Yeah, such a good point. And there's lots of different ways you can do student housing. I mean, you can buy an apartment that is really geared towards that many times with shared bathrooms, but other ways are just being able to buy a house and rent out the rooms to individual students, right? Your daughter was involved with that. I have a good friend that did that. I mean, that's a way that you can also look at capitalizing on the student market. A couple things to consider is the seasonality. Many of the students do not want to rent the unit for the summer months, and so you have to factor that into the equation. And the other thing is, is your income is based generally on a particular school. Most student housing is right near a school. So one of the things you absolutely want to research is what does that school look like in terms of their enrollment, their pattern, their history, their expectations. All schools are forecasting enrollment you better get on that equation. Yeah, they're a big part of your marketing and you know they effectively become your marketing partner. Not only do you want to understand what they're doing, but you want to make friends with them and understand what they may be doing to address their needs. They may be taking some internal initiatives that would end up being competition to you that you need to be aware of. So uh, make sure you're paying attention to that. Now we have a friend who's taken this model a bit further in the UK. And what she and her husband do is they rent essentially a four bedroom, four bathroom unit with a common living area and kitchen. So it's a specifically designed unit where each person is paying for their own bedroom and bathroom. So they're not sharing a bathroom, but they have common area. And instead of going after students, they go after the folks who have just graduated, so new into the job market, folks who are out of school for two, three, four years. So they're still single, they still want that camaraderie, and they want to be able to hang out, but they also need their private space. Yeah, that's great, because it's better than going back to live with mom and dad while you save up for your first down payment or get your car or student loans handled or whatever, you know? So uh, that's a really interesting model. The other thing it just triggers in my mind is that, you know, every once in a while you hear an announcement that they're putting school in somewhere, and when that happens, Happens, there's a huge opportunity to try to grab up some stuff in the local area and figure out what that school's all about, what kind of demographic they're going to attract, and maybe retrofit some existing stuff. Or if there's space, you have the ability to actually develop some stuff. But before you make big capital investments, make sure you understand what the school's plan is for student housing. Because again, you know, you're a little fry, they're a big fry, and you can either have a symbiotic relationship or you're going to get eaten. All right. One of the things that uh, we've been interested in lately, especially, and we did a whole show on this a few months 
back is the area of assisted living. Yeah, this one's fascinating because it goes back to solving this other economic demographic problem, right? We want to capitalize on where the baby boomers are going through the life cycle. Obviously, right now, they're at the life cycle of retirement, where they're 10,000 plus retiring every day. What's on the backside of retirement is assisted living, nursing home, senior care, right? But right now, those very same baby boomers who are largely in the most affluent portion of their life have elderly parents that are either going to live with them, go live in an institutional type living home. But the people who are a little bit more on the affluent side may want something in between where I can put mom or dad or mom and dad into a nice home nearby that's professionally run with 24-7 care. But the amount of rent that you derive per room, it's not even per room, it's per person. Sometimes you have two people in a room is very high and often subsidized, not necessarily by government, but by insurance. It's a fascinating niche for a lot of reasons, and certainly the demographic shift is huge. This has been an interesting niche for years. The idea that, I mean, I remember years ago, my grandmother moved into a great assisted living facility where she had her own room and kitchen and she could cook and all that, but there was a dining hall where she came for dinner and she had the social, the thing she loved the most was the social aspect of it. All her friends were there and they had classes and they watched movies and, you know, picture that uh, movie Cocoon, right? So It's these folks who have something in common more than just their age, but what they're interested in who come together and they're living a more full life. On the other side of that is that they'll pay more. The economics of it are staggering. Oh, yeah. And they pay two, three, four, five, in some cases, $10,000 a month. And you think, my goodness, how can they afford to do that? Well, first of all, some of them have affluent family and they want the best for their, their loved one. The other thing, again, is these insurance policies sometimes pay $100, $200 a day for care. And all of this can be directed towards the facility in which they're being cared for. And that's you. So it's a fascinating niche. And the great thing is it helps you derive rents from the affluent. Now let's talk about the length of a tenancy in assisted living situation. This is just for a season in someone's life and there's tenants that are only there for a few months before they have to go into something that requires more care and there's people that are there for years and years. On average might be two, three years. The tenant base is increasing and that's what you always want to look at, right? It's the demographics. I mean more people needing this type of care and guess what? People are living longer. And Let's talk about the business side of it because It's not just a pure real estate play, although it can be. One of the purest ways to play in this space is to buy the facility and lease it to an operator who will generally pay a little more than market rent for the same property because they're going to have more yield and you're going to have to cooperate with them with things like setting up the physicality of the building a little differently. Sometimes they take big bedrooms and put a wall between them and make them two smaller rooms. Sometimes they have to add a bathroom, things like that, which the operator might do on their dime. You have to be willing to go along with that. But so there is a way to play as just a pure hands-off landlord, but there's also a way to get involved where you are involved with part of the business. Now, our good friend Gene Garino, who's been on the summit with us, and uh, you probably heard the show we did with him. If not, uh, we'll tell you how you can watch his webinar about this, which is fascinating. You've actually been to his three-day workshop. I have, and it's great because it was run really a lot like a real estate guy's field trip. You know, we start out a day in the classroom and we learn a lot about the industry and how it works and why it's a great time and all of those things, and we're taught what to look for. And then the next day, he takes us out in a bus And we all go through and we walk through two or three live operating centers. We talk to the tenants. We talk to the operators. We meet his team, his staff. He shows us how it works. He shows us different price points. He shows uh, there's five different levels that you can play at. And he says, you know, the lower end and the higher end are hard to make work. The sweet spot is in the middle. Yeah. 
go figure. It typically is that way, right? And so it's very tactical. Then you come back the uh, next day and you do a debrief where you really talk about what you saw, what you learned, what your questions, and how do you take this education to go from education to action, you know, kind of borrowing from our world. So we really get along with him because he approaches the whole problem the same way we do. Very educational, very strategic in terms of understanding the demographic. He emphasizes larger markets and he teaches you how to know if a particular marketplace can actually support the business. The good news is, is there is a huge demand and very little supply, and there's a lot of room to get involved in this. And the other part of it, Robert, to your point, is there's different areas to play, right? Right. And so it, because there's so much cash flow available, and we still have an out-of-the-box financing situation, even though residential real estate financing is extremely cheap right now, if you approach it with, hey, I want to do this, but then... I'm going to put this business in it. it the, the conventional lenders get a little weirded out by it, right? But private lending is a real opportunity here because you can be two or three points above the market and get it and they can easily afford to pay it to you. And so you don't even have to be in the operator or the equity side. You can just sit back and collect above average cash flow on an A piece of property with a credit borrower. If this is an area that sounds interesting to you, uh, Gene's got a great webinar that you can watch. I mean, I'll give you more information than we've been a couple in a few minutes here. Uh, just send an email to ALF, A-L-F, like assisted living facility, ALF at realestateguysradio.com and we will send you the details on how you can see that webinar. Lots of ways to get more yield out of your real estate investment. We're talking about a bunch of them today. We've got more. Plus, we'll play real estate trivia next. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Forbes rated Memphis the best cash flow market in the nation. And our good friend Terry Kerr at Mid-South Homebuyers has been the premier turnkey rental property provider in Memphis for over 13 years. With an A-plus rating for the Better Business Bureau, Terry has renovated over 750 houses. Real Estate Guys listeners have snapped up hundreds. Discover what these satisfied investors already know. Mid-South's properties are completely renovated with a one-year warranty and a lifelong rental guarantee. They're affordable, well-managed, and easy to own. Perfect for beginning investors and veterans alike. Get in on the action. Contact Terry and his team via email at midsouth at realestateguysradio.com. Are you still sitting on the sidelines trying to figure out when and where you're going to buy those investment properties? Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Atlanta, Georgia is still on sale, but you better act fast because the deals are almost gone. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with Georgia Residential Partners, and I want you to know that there may not be a better investing opportunity than Atlanta right now. Listed as one of the fastest growing markets in the country, both in terms of jobs and population, Forbes predicts 26% appreciation over the next three years. At Georgia Residential Partners, we sell turnkey cash-flowing investment properties. We also sell wholesale properties at insane discounts. We're launching a new home construction product this summer as well, and if you're still nervous about stepping out into another market, I will personally partner with you on a small portfolio of homes, if that's what it takes. Don't wait any longer. Check us out at gainvesting.com or call our office at 770-924-5450. We look forward to hearing from you.
Hi, this is Simon Black from SovereignMan.com, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program, the number one downloaded podcast on real estate investing. We're talking today about ways you can find more yield, squeeze more yield out of your real estate deals by considering niches. And there sure are a bunch of them. Before we get back to that discussion, it's time to play Real Estate Trivia, your chance to win a prize by knowing today's Real Estate Trivia question. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you a trivia question that has something to do with one of the niches we've discussed. As soon as you hear the question and think you know the answer, send it to us via email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. The first person with the right answer is going to win a copy of Second Chance, the latest book by Robert Kiyosaki, and it's a good one. Last week on the Real Estate Guys, we were talking about office, retail, and industrial as some of the commercial classes of real estate. And we asked this, where is the world's largest industrial park in terms of land area? Well, it's a big one. It is 418 square kilometers, 161 square miles. It's called the Khalifa Industrial Zone in Abu Dhabi. Really? Okay. Absolutely. I was thinking maybe China, but yeah. In Abu Dhabi. Number two is in Alberta, Canada. Here's our real estate trivia question for this week. Which U.S. state has the highest percentage of housing units that are mobile homes? Yep, which state has the highest percentage of its housing units as mobile homes? So it's not the most mobile homes necessarily, but it's the highest, I guess, per capita of the people who live in mobile homes. If you know or want to take a guess, send your best guess to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Be sure and include your name and your actual mailing address so we can send you a physical copy of Robert Kiyosaki's great book, Second Chance. That's today's real estate trivia question. We're talking about niches in real estate getting rich in a niche that has higher yield. And we've talked about a bunch of good ones so far. Let's talk about land. Now, we did a whole show on land uh, several months back. But specifically, there's a couple of areas where land as a real estate investment can make sense. And one is what we call land banking. That is just going out and finding land in the path of progress. Between the time that a piece of land is raw dirt and it becomes built and developed into a finished product, there's lots of profit taking. There's lots of places that value gets added and owners and entrepreneurs can make money. And one of the biggest areas is going from what we call raw land, just dirt, to entitled land. Right. Sometimes that includes the streets and gutters and utilities. Sometimes it's simply a matter of getting plat maps approved. But there's a, a way to make high yield investments in land. But also you need to be pretty strategic about it. You do. And you have to be strategic about everything you do. And the best way to do it when you're doing anything is to figure out who the big players are in what's going on. Obviously, planning commissions kind of know what's going on. And there's often meetings and public policy debates about what is going to be happening. A lot of times, if you're paying attention to the commercial real estate news and some of the chatter about the direction of things, give you an example. I've told this story before, but it's such a great example. So I'm sitting next to a woman in the early years on the cruise, right? We're out there on the summit. We're sitting in, in a show. I'm sitting next to a woman. I said, you know, do you cruise off? And she goes, I cruise all the time. And she goes, all I do is cruise, 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 cruise. And I said, oh, really? What do you do? She goes, I don't do anything. And I said, well, how did you get to a position where all you do is cruise, 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 and you don't have to work for money? And she says, well, do you want to know? I said, of course I want to know. She goes, well, I heard the Denver Broncos were going to be moving their stadium. And so I went out to where they were going to be building the stadium, and I bought all of the land in that general vicinity, hoping to turn it into parking lots. 
She had to do hardly any development. As soon as the thing was announced, you know, buy on rumor, uh, she made a ton of money and the thing just hemorrhages cash flow. And that was the concept, Robert, to your point of being in the path of progress. But how does she know? She had her ear to the ground and she knew what she was looking for. It could be the same thing with a freeway overpass. It could be the announcement of, say, Apple Computer building a huge campus. I mean, remember how secretive Walt Disney was when he was aggregating land in Orlando, oh, yeah. right? It was this big thing of not letting anybody know who the buyer was because he didn't want to tip his hand because then everybody who held the land would understand, boy, my land just went way up in value and that would change his business model. So path of progress is a huge one. Yeah. And it's hard to do in other types of property. If it's already developed, there's not that much you can do, but in land, it's very pliable. And so land also generally doesn't have financing. So there are some pros and some cons. There's not the tax deductibility of land, but it definitely has the potential for higher yield. Yeah. So that was the evergreen side of the concept here. Now let's talk a little bit about the timely part. You know, Jim Rickards, who's a guy we're a big fan of, wrote The Death of Money, Currency Wars. One of the things he talks about defending yourself from the long-term downward trend of paper currency, including the dollar, in spite of its recent strength, is to put your money in raw land. And his idea is you just park the wealth in raw land, and eventually, when the economy turns around, the raw land will always be worth something. And in fact, if there's a depression in labor and material costs, which you could make an argument, is a little soft right now, you'll be able to develop the property, improve it, and create equity very quickly, and then catch the upswing in the economy. You can take it a step further in the whole raw land thing because you can find creative ways to derive interim income off of it. We talked earlier about things like billboards, cell towers, if that happens to be strategically located. Pumpkin farms, Christmas tree farms. I mean, you can create parking lots for events that happen. Um, sometimes circuses or carnivals come through town and they need a big space. There are things you can do when you have a chunk of land that don't mar the land, that don't interfere with the land uh, in its ultimate value, but allow you to derive some income along the way. In many ways, mobile home parks are a great land bank. Yes. If you study the evolution of certain marketplaces, you'll see where a mobile home park was put in years and years ago at the outskirts of town because generally you need a lot of space and it can't be very expensive for that model to work. And then town creeps around it. And before you know it, that becomes really valuable land. So pretty soon the outskirts become the inskirts. Exactly, or the trailer <laughs> skirts anyway. And then what happens is you just move all those mobile homes onto a new piece of land 30 right. miles away and you develop or sell that property. So there's a lot of ways that uh, you can do that with land. And there's another way too. It's the pizza theory, right? You buy a big chunk of land, you subdivide it, and then you sell it. And if you've paid for it with cash and you're intention for your cash was to create yield, you park the equity in the property, no debt, and then you turn around and you sell off parcels and you carry back the financing at income. So now you've created spread, you've got wealth parked in real assets while you're waiting to create income streams on it by loaning it out. And if someone doesn't perform, you just take it right back and resell it. And if you get a down payment, you know, you're generating that cash flow along the way too. So there, there's a lot of creative ways to work with land. And a lot of times people don't address land because they think, oh, if I go into land, I don't have any income. That is not true. There's a guy in a market that we're in who has done exactly what you just described. He bought a big piece of land and today it's been subdivided. And for the last several years, he has sold every piece that he sold on owner carry. And here are his terms, 10, 10, 10, 10% down, 10% interest, 10-year amortization. That's the only way he'll sell. He's been offered cash and turned it down even at full price because his model is he's creating a revenue stream. He doesn't want the cash now. He doesn't need the cash now. He wants a revenue stream. So he sells all his property 10, 10, 10. In the first five or six sales, 
he recouped 100% of what he originally spent. I love that. <laughs> yes, that's a great, great model. Now, let's talk about one of the more obvious uses of land and shift gears a little bit, and that is agriculture. Yeah, We can one. get yield out of rents, but getting yield out of trees and bushes is even better. Yeah, this one's huge. Uh, I get excited about it. Because if you really think about it, you know, the, the reason residential real estate is so attractive is because it serves a basic human need. And in the priority ladder of things that people are willing to pay for in their life, it's pretty high up there. Also, because government agencies and industry are all highly motivated to support it. And we've seen that happen when we had the big meltdown in residential real estate. All the powers that be did exactly what we would expect them to do uh, to try to save it. Well, the same is largely true in food, if you really think about it. I mean, if, if there's anything that's above housing in terms of people's spending priority, it's probably food, right? Yeah. And then the thing is that's great about a commodity of like food is that wherever the need is, the product can be sold. You don't have to get the geography right in terms of the demographics. You have to get the geography right in terms of the productivity of the land. But the product itself can be shipped anywhere. And if you happen to specialize in a very durable type of commodity, also you have the benefit of being able to store it up in a boom year. You you know, there's things that you can do. If it's a more perishable one, you take a little bit more risk. But the point is uh, you can combine strategies. So you've got income from the land based on a renewable resource. You know, we had Craig on the show uh, some time ago and he was talking about timber. And the idea of timber is, you know, you plant the tree and the trees grow six to eight percent per year no matter what's going on in the economy. It doesn't right. matter. It doesn't right. matter what interest rates are. It doesn't matter what geopolitical risk is. I mean, they just grow. That's what they do. That means if your end product is timber, every year your inventory, if you will, is growing by 6 to 8% no matter what. And whatever the world's currency is and whatever it, you know, the units of value are in the future, it doesn't matter because that's a real asset that has real value and people will pay whatever is real at that time to have it. And so there are a lot of reasons why farmland makes sense, not the least of which is demographically. We have huge populations in Asia that are growing and need to be fed. They don't have huge amounts of farmland relative to their population. So if you have the ability to buy farmland, you can feed those nations. Uh, that's a great opportunity. And world, you know, with the world population growing, it's a for sure thing. And as more and more people take up space, less and less land is available for farming, which means ultimately the supply and demand laws say that ought to be a pretty good capital investment as well. The wild card is water. Absolutely. There's a ton we can do and have done shows on agriculture. If you go through our special reports section on our website, you'll find some reports on all kinds of different agriculture, but certainly a great use of real estate and worth a little evaluation by most real estate investors. We're talking about niches you can get rich in in real estate. We'll be back with a few more. I'm your host, Robert Helms. We're the Real Estate Guys. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. When the housing market crashed in 2008, San Antonio led the way in appreciation and cash flow. Would you like to have a strong, reliable investment that performs in both up and down markets? Cash flow is the key to successful investing, and we have tons of positive cash flow properties for our ATW investors. Come see why the Milken Institute rated San Antonio the number one economy in the United States and why San Antonio is the only major city in the country to have a AAA bond rating. ATW Investments can teach you strategies for building strong, secure wealth with investments starting at $5,000. ATW's patented, proven, and powerful system will do all the hard work for you. ATW is where the perfect market meets the perfect strategy and produces the perfect results in your portfolio. 
To get started, go to the resource section of the Real Estate Guys website or email us at contact at ATW-investments.com. It may not be obvious, but your retirement account is the power to work miracles, if only you'll let it. Hi, it's Robert Helms, and Russ and I are excited to invite you to Planning for Prosperity, a one-day educational event taking place in beautiful Orlando, Florida on Friday, October 2nd. Hosted by New View IRA, this alternative investment symposium will cover a wide variety of topics from a great panel of speakers, including Rich Dad Advisor and best-selling author Ken McElroy, IRA custodian Glenn Mather, attorney Joel Nagel, and the real estate guys back for our second year. Discover how to get started investing inside your retirement account, how to move from earned income to passive income, and where to find great deals suitable for your IRA. Tickets are just $99, and all profits go to the Wheelchair Foundation. Get the details on our website at realestateguysradio.com under events, where you'll see Planning for Prosperity. We can't wait to see you there. Hi, I'm G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Now in our 19th year of broadcast, it seems like only yesterday. Well, maybe the day before we started broadcasting. But you go back and listen to all the shows that are in the last few years of archives on iTunes or on our website at realestateguysradio.com. We're talking today about niches that you can consider if you want to drive up the yield of your real estate investments. We've been talking about this for several weeks. If uh, cap rates are squeezed in your favorite investment area, why not consider something else? So let's turn the tables a little bit and talk about something real estate related, but not exactly real estate. And that is the note side, the financial side. There are ways to get yield out of being the financing part of the equation. Yeah, it's and sometimes it's hard to get your mind around and you know to do math on the radio is really hard to do, but just conceptually it works like this, you know, if you're able to go out there and buy a note, think of it like an apartment building and it has a stream of payments coming in. Think of that like rent. And whatever the interest rate is, that's your yield, right? So the person who owns the building, if they charge a higher price for the stream of income they have coming in, the actual cap rate or return on investment that you're going to get is smaller. But if they charge less, in other words, you buy it at a discount, now the actual return you get on your money is higher than even the note rate on the instrument is, right? right? The concept here is to find somebody, a don't wanter, somebody who owns a note and is getting a stream of income who says, you know what, I love getting these monthly checks, but I want to go do something now. I don't want to wait three, five, ten years like this, you know, talking about the guy carrying back his 10-year notes. If he had a life event where he said, you know what, it's interesting that I'm going to get paid back over 10 years, but I need my money right now because the deal of a lifetime just showed up or I just found out a loved one has a terminal disease and I need cash today, I'm willing to sell these notes at a discount in order to attract a buyer. When you can find that kind of a deal, you can create a high yield on your capital and then you step right into his position. In this particular case, if it's a note backed by real estate, if the note doesn't perform, you then can end up with the real estate. So notes can be a great way to generate yield in a portfolio, even if the if the underlying rate itself on the instrument isn't that high. Yeah, good point. Like the way bonds work. And in this case, you're talking about buying and reselling even uh, existing notes. You can also originate notes, right? If you're a cash owner, if you own outright a property and you want to sell it rather than just take the cash, sometimes a great solution is to take a note back and, and at least part of the proceeds, right? And that now becomes something that you can just keep as an income stream or as you just talked about to sell off. Well, so not to 
get too esoteric, but there's a game you can play right now in today's market because the interest rates are so low, which is where you are going to be able to take advantage of today's low interest rates. So let's say you have a piece of property, you have some borrowing capacity and you borrow money. And let's say you borrow money at 4%. Okay. And then you turn around and you buy a piece of land, which you couldn't get financing on. Right. And you pay the cash for that. You take the proceeds of the loan and you pay cash for that. So now it's as though I could get the loan on the land for 4%. Well, effectively, you've taken equity out of property A, where you could easily get effective financing, and you've turned around and you've planted that into property B. Now you turn around and you do the same thing your buddy did, which is you sell the parcels off at 10%. Now you took 4% money and created 6% money on it, secured by real estate, and you have a 6% spread. You just put yield in your portfolio basically for free. If you think about it, once you have fully sold all those parcels uh, at whatever the interest rate is, now you have arbitraged the equity in property A for extreme of cash flow on property B. And if your cash flow on property B doesn't perform, you take back the real estate and just repeat the process. Now, if we're talking about just investing, a simple way to do that is to be the lender, to do a purchase money, hard money loan. What is hard money? Well, it means that it's a little harder to get because there are points and fees up front and because the interest rates are higher, but that spells yield for you. What hard money can be a great tool for is for the right operator. So take someone, for instance, who's buying a house to rehab it and flip it for a profit. They need capital for a short period of time, four or six months. They'll pay a higher interest rate and you'll have the security of the property. You can structure a really great deal where you go in as the money partner at a fairly conservative loan to value, maybe 60%, and maybe charge a high interest rate, 10 12%. You could even charge a couple of points. That sounds like an expensive loan, but for the person rehabbing, it saves them having to have that capital. And when they look at the actual cost folded into their business model, it doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't, you know, the, they don't look at the interest rate. They look at the absolute amount of interest dollars during the hold period. And they just add that to the points and fees. And they put all that in their blender and go, okay, that's what it's going to cost me to carry this, which is cheaper than it would cost for me to tie up all of the capital myself, if I even had it. Uh, because the amount of effort, say, for example, it's somebody who's raising money and they've got to go raise money. That takes time. Uh, if they have other assets on their balance sheet and they're not fully deployed, they're comparing what they're getting on their current investments versus what it's going to cost them. So if I've got a 14 or 15% investment, I'm not going to cash that out to save a 9% hard money loan on a project that I think I can easily cover the interest carry with the profit, right? So it's just, it's math. So sometimes we get hung up thinking, oh, because I would never borrow at 9%. Nobody would. That's not true. Uh, you have to learn to think in the, in the eyes of the customer. And, you know, sometimes speed is so much more important. Speed and convenience is so much more important than the actual note rate itself. So you, if you can keep your money moving, and if you've got a serial guy who goes from project to project to project, now you can just keep funding him, keep generating that yield, and he's cranking out profits in excess of his cost. He becomes a money machine for you. He takes the equity risk. He does the hard work, and he's paying you fees along the way. A lot of other ways to make money in notes. Uh, we just met a gentleman at our Secrets of Successful Syndication workshop a few weeks back who had been on a couple of real estate guys' field trips. He's got a side business buying second mortgages. He buys them for extreme discounts because a lot of non-performing second mortgages today are out there, but he's got a great way to go in and reposition that money. So there's just a ton of ways that you can play on the note side just for your consideration. We tried to cover a whole bunch of niches, so we got your creative juices flowing. You can think of tons more, and you should.
should. The whole concept is if you always do it the way you've always done it, you're always going to get the same results. So see if you can come up with some higher yield ways to invest in real estate and uh, other assets. Next week on the show, we're going to shift gears a lot. You're going to love it. Until then, go out and make some equity happen. This episode of the Real Estate Guys Radio Show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid-South Home Buyers, low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.